contact tracing to centralize or decentralize the IAPP's take on privacy during a pandemic and the shifting strategies of identity fraudsters. These stories and more in this week's ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Nick Holland. Contact tracing is a very hot topic these days. The benefits of being able to digitally connect the dots between COVID-19 carriers and people they have come into contact with has obvious benefits. But the privacy implications of governments tracking citizens to this degree of minutiae has rather ominous Orwellian undertones. With more on some of the initiatives to date, here's ISMG's Executive Editor, Data Breach Today in Europe, Matthew Schwartz. Digital contact tracing apps could help us ease COVID-19 lockdowns more quickly and stay safer going forward. At their most basic, these apps would function like submarines, pinging each other and exchanging a unique token whenever smartphone users got close enough to each other for a certain period of time. If a user later tested positive for COVID-19, they could set an alert via the app so that everyone they came into contact with previously could be warned that they should self-isolate since they may have been infected with the virus that causes the disease. Now, it's not clear if contact tracing apps actually will help, but everyone is going to need to use them to try and make them work and give us our best chance of getting ahead of this pandemic. For all of that to happen, however, governments are going to have to convince people to get on board. Here's British Secretary of State Dominic Robb speaking at a Tuesday press conference. We've worked with the, uh, the experts we've got in the National Cyber Security Centre to make sure we've got the greatest protections on things like privacy. Um, and we've got very high standards, both of professionalism but of privacy, as we embark on what will be an unprecedented um, IT uh, project. Despite Rob's claims, however, his government has been pursuing a project that lacks transparency, offers no legal protections for captured data, aims to build social graphs of everyone an individual comes into contact with, tracks people's location, has no guarantees for when it will get rid of collected data, and plans to process data centrally. All of these things are what hundreds of leading scientists and researchers warned governments not to do in an open letter they published on April 20th. Why are these things bad? For starters, Allowing a government to harvest and centrally store all data captured by these apps is a recipe for unchecked surveillance, it could be abused by adversaries, and it could also lead to data breaches. When the letter came out, I spoke with Alan Woodward, a professor of computer science at the University of Surrey who helped organize the letter, about the recommendations and concerns that it highlights. The big, I mean, and it really is a big point at the moment, is centralized versus decentralized. So, for example, should I be doing that risk modeling by capturing all the data on some central server somewhere? Um, or should I be have some kind of anonymous exchange of tokens with people and allow it to be done on the phone? The risk being, and this is what led to the letter, the risk being that if you try and capture a lot of that data, whilst we all understand that extraordinary times call for extraordinary measures, it could actually be misused. It could be used for what's called social graphing. So you can start to track people's movements for all sorts of other purposes. Is it too late for the UK to do the right thing? It's notable that this week, Australia, which had been pursuing a centralized approach, signaled that it plans to go with a decentralized approach for its contact tracing app instead. 
Germany also went through a similar journey before changing its mind in recent weeks. And in Britain, Prime Minister Boris Johnson's administration has suggested in recent days now that it may rethink its approach as well, although as yet hasn't offered any concrete details about what that might mean. In some respects, these are early days. This is the first time anyone in the world has been trying to develop a contact tracing app, at least for widespread use. Whether or not these apps will help public health officials reduce the number of new COVID-19 infections remains to be seen. And there's no one right way to do it. But as the scientists' open letter made clear, there do seem to be wrong ways. Bearing in mind that the road to hell is often paved with good intentions, we just wanted to put a few markers down, one of which was these decentralized approaches are preferred. It has to put privacy as a high factor in this. But also, that we've said a point three of our letter was, if it really is necessary to collect some of this data and process it centrally, then it has to abide by the data protection guidelines that are already out there, which is you collect only the minimum you need and you justify it to the public. And there's some sort of sunset clause. So eventually it will evaporate and it can't be misused for other things in the future. Hopefully governments that started off on the wrong foot will now find their way on the right one. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Matthew Schwartz. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. Before COVID-19, the privacy discussion this year was mainly about the California Consumer Privacy Act. Now, it's about healthcare data sharing, contact tracing, and monitoring remote workers. Homer Tene of the International Association of Privacy Professionals discussed the pandemic's influence on global privacy concerns with ISMG's SVP of Editorial, Tom Field. In this excerpt of the interview, Tom asks, what is the state of privacy today with the impact of COVID-19? Here's Omer's response. Uh, We have seen an urgent need for data by governments, by healthcare systems, by academic institutions, and this includes all kinds of data, location data and proximity information, uh, tracking populations, of of course, healthcare data. Um, So there is a greater need in the very compelling public interest why uh, we would want to facilitate data access, data sharing, and uh, data use. Uh, But in all of these discussions, privacy has been front and center. So if you think about contact tracing apps, uh, those are only as good as the adoption rate. If, If no one downloads them, enables them, then they're not effective. And people won't adopt technologies unless they trust them. And privacy, of course, is a very key uh, uh, component and sometimes really a surrogate for uh, trust. The digital platforms that we are currently communicating on and that I'm sure you've you know, already done your first share of meetings on today and my kids are still in school and uh, studying through these uh, platforms, Um, have raised privacy and data security issues. You know, that Zoom, which has grown from, uh, I think, something like 10 million to 200 million uh, users in about a month, 
uh, has had its share of uh, privacy issues uh, discussed, you know, over the front pages, uh, business pages, or actually might have been front uh, news pages uh, of uh, media. Um, so you see that privacy is very central there. And as we consider how to restart the economy before there is a vaccine, privacy, again, will figure prominently in you know, checking employees' uh, temperatures and um, do we share information about an employee who tested positive or has even been exposed to someone who tested positive. Um, and some countries are considering antibody passports, uh, certificates that demonstrate that someone tested uh, positive for antibodies to the disease. Um, and of course, there are privacy and um, fairness, equality questions there. So uh, I'd say more use and need for data, but part and parcel with that, also more privacy issues. Finally, a new report came out recently from Javelin Strategy, tracking recent trends in identity fraud. One of the anomalies flagged in the research is a decrease in the number of identity fraud incidents but an increase in financial losses between 2018 and 2019. I spoke to Krista Tedder, Director of Security and Payments at Javelin Strategy and author of the study, and asked her why this is. Here she is. That was the anomaly that really we wanted to dig into uh, because typically you would, uh, the assumption would be fewer incidents equals less dollars lost. And this is the complete opposite of, of what we found. And it's because of a real shift in how the criminals are behaving and how they are committing identity fraud. So when there's more incidents, that generally means it's a smaller dollar figure or per per card transaction. So it's more transaction based uh, on existing card programs when the number of incidents are high. So if you think back to the heyday before EMV and it was MagStripe, the incident rates were a lot higher. Uh, and now criminals are finding they have to uh, perpetrate fewer acts to get even more money. So criminals are using digital technology and they're working smarter, not harder, and they're able to get more. Uh, and that's really what we dug into to figure out why that is occurring. Okay. So what kind of types of fraud are we seeing? It looks like, again, obviously the card fraud is a little bit, it's, it's smaller value, it's more labor intensive. What's been the, the pivot here in terms of the fraudsters modus operandi? So card frauds still are important. However, we saw a major increase in new account frauds being in merchant accounts, as well as checking and savings accounts. Uh, in account takeover, um, there's also higher incidence of social media takeovers, uh, utility takeovers. So things that are used to obtain information uh, the accounts that traditionally wouldn't be considered as a financial instrument generally now have financial data associated with it. So we're really getting an understanding that criminals are playing a long game. They're taking over email accounts, social media accounts to gain the information to then commit new account fraud. Okay. And so the combination of the two really is, is the difference. That's it for this week's ISMG Security Report. 
theme music is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Nick Holland. Catch you next time.